good evening, everyone. My name is Colin McClay, and I'm the Managing Director of the Berkman Center for Internet and Society. And I want to welcome you here on this um, no longer snowy in the sky, but snowy on the ground uh, evening. Um, it is our great pleasure to um, have this event, to host it in collaboration with the Shorenstein Center. It's something that we've been wanting to do more of, and hopefully this is the first of um, more interactions with Shorenstein, so we're thrilled. Um, in addition to being thrilled about that, we're especially excited to have Dan Gilmore here, who, as he will tell you in his um, brief remarks, I'm sure, uh, made uh, quite an effort to be here with us tonight um, due to the storm and the fact that he was in the Bay Area. Um, <clears throat> so it's rather nothing short of a miracle that he's made it. Um, uh, just to give you the briefest of all introductions uh, about our participants tonight and about what we're hoping is going to happen is really just um, a conversation, which Dan is going to kick off um, talking uh, kind of the first of uh, four um, events along these lines that he's going to do over the course of this semester that are going to be scattered around campus. And we'll invite you to come to the other ones, which will be at places to be determined uh, later. There's a sign-up sheet over by the cookies, along with more handouts, if you didn't get one, um, in which he talks about citizen media and uh, his new center. Um, he's a fellow at the Berkman Center uh, and also at the University of California Berkeley School of Journalism, uh, another institution with whom we are developing relationships. So we, we are thrilled to have him in this sort of bi-coastal uh, setup. Um, and uh, we also are very fortunate to have David Berlind, who has uh, graced us with his presence, a long drive from uh, Newburyport. Um, and despite some back issues, will be here with us uh, to comment on uh, Dan's talk. Um, David is the uh, executive editor of ZDNet and a longtime journalist uh, who not only covers technology, but actually uses technology uh, as a big blogger, uh, very much engaged in the production of technology uh, in any number of different ways, which I'm hoping he'll talk a little bit about as well. And finally, uh, your own Alex Jones, uh, former um, media critic of the New York Times, director of Shorenstein Center, lecturer here at the Kennedy School, um, all-around great guy. So we have quite a lineup that we hope will uh, launch us into um, all sorts of conversations about uh, new media, citizen media, uh, where um, new and old media uh, collide, combined, how this democratization of access to technology and opportunities to publish um, our words and is, uh, is changing the uh, media landscape. So with that, I give you Dan Gilmore. <clears throat> Thanks. Uh, th thanks, everybody, for coming. And uh, it, it's not a miracle I'm here, but uh, it, it, I'm sort of, put it this way, my positive karma in air travel is now at a deficit because I had so much of it yesterday. I mean, the fact that I'm here astounds me because of the, uh, my flight was canceled and they routed me through Chicago and it worked. I mean, I got the only flight that actually got here from Chicago yesterday, as far as I know. So, and, and, and even more on the karma, they upgraded me. <laughs> so don't travel with me anytime soon. It's not going to be much fun, I can tell you. Uh, all right, I'm going to whip through uh, a bunch of slides and 
I hope then get quickly to a conversation. I, I want to kind of lay the framework for what I think is going on and, and how, how it seemed to me to be developing and then uh, maybe throw a few ideas out there for folks. And then at the end, uh, Alex and David will uh, tell you either why I'm completely full of crap or maybe onto something or something in between. So let's, let's go from there. If I, uh, so just some data points, uh, which I'm going to come back to the, uh, I don't like this old media, new media stuff. It's we media sort of feels better to me as where we're heading. Uh, and that the baseline for it is ubiquitous networks. The, 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 the conditions in which this will grow is ubiquitous networks, inexpensive tools that are getting uh, more powerful all the time and that means that anyone can publish and that that has pretty big implications as we go out and that it's about a read-write web, you know, the web that developed in the early to mid, well, the mid-90s till about 2000 was kind of read-only. You had to kind of know things with HTML and other uh, technology in order to publish. Now you don't really need to know much of anything and that that has uh, meaning for all of us. Now blogs are what we hear about, but it's much, much more than blogs. And anybody who wants this, uh, the slides. I'll be happy to give it to you later. There's, uh, there's SMS and texting, which is bigger in other countries than here. Um, I knew when the Pentagon started doing podcasts that it was over. Uh, video is starting to get amazing. Okay, it's October 6, 2005. I'm Amanda Congdon, and this is Rocket Boom. That's a uh, show based in New York that a couple of people put together every day, and it's, it's not a threat yet to uh, the evening broadcast, but it's quite good and done by just a couple of folks in, in a small studio. Uh, something else going on is that it's not just about the journalist or the, uh, the audience, but the people and institutions journalists cover, the newsmakers, have a new world that's been thrust upon them too, and they can something new is being done to them, and they have new opportunities to do things. We, I'll talk a little bit about that, but that's that's a much bigger subject. The daily me already exists. We can aggregate a bunch of different things into what we want, but where we're heading is kind of a daily we, and that is much more intriguing to me. Uh, it's the thing that I'm going to spend a lot of my time on as as we go out. A little history on how I figured, uh, at least how I decided this was happening. Um, I've been teaching every fall in Hong Kong for a month or so at the University of Hong Kong. And uh, these are um, uh, events that go on that, uh, th this is not this slide, but I was, I started putting together reports from the U.S. when I was out there and figuring I was getting better news accounts than I was getting from the U.S., and uh, the September 11th was a turning point for a lot of things. This was how we all saw it at first. Um, the TV was covering it, and it went on to web pages pretty quickly. Um, but something else was going on, and I want to talk a little bit about that. The, uh, I was in South Africa at the time uh, doing workshops for uh, African journalists on how to use the Internet, and on the way to Zambia and, and with a small group. And 
it was hard to get American or, or uh, English language things except on the web. And one of the things that I noticed in my email the next day was on a mailing list that a man named Dave Farber runs. Uh, he's a technology guy from Pennsylvania. He had a link. Someone, what he does every day is people send him things uh, that, the, he, that they think might be interesting. He then, in turn, picks the ones that are, in his opinion, interesting and sends them out to his audience, which is now 50 or 60,000 people. One of the things that day was a satellite image of Lower Manhattan that was very striking, not something I'd seen elsewhere, and I had seen it via this mailing list, and I, I remember thinking that's, that's really different. The bloggers were going crazy, of course, at the same time, and I remember one blog in particular. A guy in Brooklyn wrote, now I know what a burning city smells like. And I remember reading that and thinking, we used to say journalists wrote the first draft of history. But I think this guy was doing the first draft of history at some level. And I, I wasn't sure what to go, where that would go, but it, it was a, an important moment for me. At the same time, a guy in California named Tamim Ansari was sending an email to a few of his friends, this passionate email saying, I know he's from Afghanistan, he said, I know you're going to bomb my country and invade, but before you do, here are a few things you should know. That mail went from those few friends to a few of their friends and then spread out like a phone tree, traditional phone tree. And at the end of it, he was uh, on the web quickly on Salon, and then by the following week, he'd been on national television in the U.S., a source who kind of created himself from uh, out at the edge of the network, and it had come through the middle and then back out again. Fast forward to another important moment in the we media phenomenon. Trent Lott, <clears throat> then the leader of the Republicans in the U.S. Senate, at a birthday party for Strom Thurmond, waxes nostalgic for segregation, effectively. A kind of outrageous statement. The major media didn't exactly pick up on the story in a big way. They did. There were a couple of mentions, but it was kind of there and then gone. Something else happened in this kind of bubbling up thing, part of which is important to remember came from some Democratic operatives with email. In fact, the Shorenstein Center did a terrific study of this, which I recommend people look at. But the bloggers played a particularly important role in this uh, thing that happened over the course of a few days. Bloggers on the left, first of all, said this is outrageous. And then a couple on the right said, you know, they're right. That is outrageous. And he doesn't speak for me either. And after a few more days, the big media picked, us, picked up the story again. And it wasn't that the bloggers brought down Strom Thurmond, but that there was a symbios symbiosis, a, a process in which media of all types were interacting with each other. And again, it was something quite important in the way things were changing. A couple of months later, the space shuttle breaks up entering the atmosphere. Uh, and again, there was an image from a satellite spotted by a blogger. And I circled the area in red there. That's the debris field coming back through the atmosphere. Uh, 
another image of resonance and power that I hadn't seen elsewhere, and that was, is it journalism? I'm not sure. The same day, something much more important in the context that we're talking about, a, an engineer, a former engineer from NASA, the space agency, on a mailing list where space buffs uh, hang out, put up a note saying, now something hit the left wing as the thing was taking off. Maybe that was what it was. And indeed it was. It was the cause. And it was a data point, and an important one, by someone who had reason to know something, someone who knew more than the journalists, certainly, who were covering it at that moment. All of these things were data for me, just thinking, well, something's going on uh, that journalism, I believe, really is changing from the lecture mode, kind of like what I'm doing now, into something much closer to a conversation or seminar or something different, but much more of something we all do, and that the, uh, the story or the broadcast is not the end, but something in the middle, and that if we take advantage of that, we, we can do better work. <clears throat> the first rule of conversation, of course, something journalists have not tended to do very well. That's listen. We listen to our sources pretty well. We don't listen to everyone else. Um, I can give a million examples. And the reason I learned to listen was that I went to Silicon Valley to write about technology. And I learned quickly that my readers knew lots more than I did. And, of course, even in 1994, they all had email and were not shy about telling me how much more they knew than I did. After being daunted by that initially, I thought, wow, this is great. These folks know all this stuff, and I don't, and they're helping me be better at what I do. Uh, that was a great moment for me to wake up to that fact. I think this is true for all journalists, whatever they write about or, or cover, that collectively, by definition, the readers, the audience knows more, and that that's a tremendous opportunity and not something to worry about. And so I think it's also true parenthetically to, for all organizations that people outside inevitably know more than the people inside. For the newsmakers, again, there's something new going on, something being done to them, and something they can do for themselves. And it all comes down to the, the sort of basic unit of the web in this new world, and that's the hyperlink. Uh, it's, a, it's an outward-looking thing, and it basically it says, go there for more, and go there for more nuance, for more depth, more whatever. Part of that means that fact-checking becomes a more global exercise. When we post something, when we write something, uh, people out there are checking, and they will uh, come down on us hard if they think we're wrong. And, of course, the most famous example for journalists was CBS News and the uh, infamous uh, 60 Minutes 2 report where they did not do sufficient due diligence on the memoranda that they cited as evidence. Uh, the, the bloggers, I put up this for uh, two reasons. One is that, that was the first posting I was able to find about the memos after the broadcast. 
that started the firestorm. But the reason I put it up for another reason is that there's a flat statement in that headline, which is no more supportable at that point than was the report that CBS had done, which is to say he said this is forged. He didn't know. But CBS didn't know that they weren't forged. And in the end, it was the duty, I think, of the journalist to have done the due diligence that CBS did not do. I don't let the blogger off the hook, however. That's, we should not be letting people off the hook. CBS did back down, finally, which was after a bunch of stonewalling, which I think was to their discredit. Uh, by the way, there was a CBS executive, former executive, who was uh, interviewed and talked about the bloggers as those people in pajamas. <clears throat> and uh, those folks became known in the outside world as the pajama hadeen after that. Something else going on here is that, of course, companies uh, are in a position where people tell each other about things, whether companies want them to know or not. Uh, the, there, there are a million stories here, but this is a case of how to fix something that the company that makes TiVo probably won't tell you how to do. And people inform each other about what's going on in other ways. People on the ground in Iraq are talking about things that they may not find in the major media. Some lessons here, it's getting harder to keep secrets. And digital technology does that. Uh, the way the word of SARS came out in uh, Guangdong province in China was not because journalists covered it, but because people were sending text messages to each other. And eventually it got into the press. Another thing that's going on, I won't. This is Stomach Medicine. You can't take this medicine together. This is Genetic Medicine. The date for use of this medicine has expired. That's taken in uh, Ken Sakamura's ubiquitous computing lab in Tokyo. Uh, he's putting RFID little radio tags into everyday objects and then connecting them to databases where you learn more about the object. And the idea is that not only can every person tell a story in this new world, but every object may start telling stories too. I'm not sure what the journalism implication of that is. But an interesting case study in at Microsoft Research, Mark Smith did a did an experiment like this with uh, barcodes that are on products, and he went to the supermarket with a handheld where he scanned the barcode, went to the barcode database to find out it was a box of cereal, and then goes to the Google rankings. The first Google result of that cereal was it had been recalled from the market, taken off the market. turned out the reason it was taken off was that there was an ingredient in the cereal but not in the list of ingredients that was potentially deadly for some people. That, that, as Mark said, if every object can tell a story, and the story is, if you eat me, I will kill you, that's kind of one you want to hear ahead of time. So the newsmakers are starting to talk. The, they're starting to do other things, too. The, after 9-11, the Post did one of its endless series about what people in government were thinking, and as soon as it was up, Pentagon posted the entire transcript of Rumsfeld's interview with the reporters. Turns out they do this with every major interview. And 
my own opinion of this is it's it's a good thing. This is good for everybody. It's more depth, more nuance. We can learn things. It also means we have to be quoting people in context. Um, as someone who's been quoted out of context, I think that would be a, a good thing. Uh, I could spend the rest of the day on this particular slide. We have got to find ways to uh, raise the level of trust in these things and to sort out the lies from the truth and to make sure that truth catches up to things that are not true. In this new world, we, again, need to ask people outside for help. NASA asked for photographs after the space shuttle crashed. They asked people if they had any kind of picture of anything in the air on the ground, send it in. They wanted to help get the pictures to help uh, figure out what had happened, and three or 4,000 people did. News organizations are starting to do this now. In a, uh, it wasn't common then. The BBC, I think, was the first to do it in an organized way. They asked for some photos before the Iraq War started, and they uh, got this uh, enormous outpouring and ended up with an essay of real power. But I have to point out that people will do it whether we ask them or not in, in big media. This is the building next to the Australian embassy in Jakarta right after the uh, bombing a couple of years ago. And this was on a photo-sharing website before the media, major media, had gotten to the scene, much less gotten it onto their own publications or broadcasts. This is the now canonical image of the London uh, bombings last July. A guy in the underground with a mobile phone camera takes this picture, and it was around the world within a day. Was he a journalist? Well, at that moment, I think he was. He may never be again and certainly hadn't been before that. But at that moment, he had become one. Um, this is the, I won't show it, but that, this is one of the tourist videos of the tsunami crashing ashore in Southeast Asia. It's important to remember, though, that this is not all new. That people, passers-by or bystanders, have done something like citizen journalism for a long, long time. And the most famous, probably, of the last century was the Zapruder film of the Kennedy assassination. What's different now, and it, the important difference, is that pretty much in the future, pretty much most people are going to be carrying around digital uh, cameras and video cameras and that those cameras will be linked to networks. So the ability to capture what you're seeing and then instantly get it out there. That's what's new, that this is going to be almost ubiquitous. There was one man in Dallas with a movie camera. Now there are thousands. Some more tools. I, I'm, I'm fond of this one. It's the, the satellite uplink in a suitcase. I, I think everyone needs this. And uh, it's more than baby movies. Do you remember the move on, did the uh, Bush in 30 Seconds series? Our allies will go from respecting us to hating us. And I don't 
don't care. I'll leave no child behind. Unless they can't afford it. I promise to keep you in a state of fear and anxiety so you never question what we're doing. And if you do, we'll call you on Patreon. So they ask people with like low-end video equipment and computers no more powerful than this to create commercials, and people did. Uh, some of them were really quite good. That was one of the finalists. The, the point of that is that, again, the tools are now so inexpensive and so powerful we, that lots of people can do this. I don't claim it's simple to do that, but a generation of people is coming along that is more fluent with video than perhaps I am with text. And for them, it'll be trivial. So where are we going? There's some things coming along that I, I like to, and that are already here. The, the idea of a self-assembling newsroom, I'm fond of this one. Uh, people who don't know each other created a site where they captured everything they could find going on about Iraq, and now they do politics. Our own Rebecca McKinnon here and Ethan Zuckerman are doing the wonderful Global Voices online, an aggregation network, and really inspiring people around the world to participate. This is um, one of the very important experiments, Wikipedia, where, uh, in fact, the Globe had a front page piece on it today. Uh, flawed in many ways, but... <clears throat> but also one of the important experiments in the whole world where anyone can work on this. Things, there's a notion of mashups where you take data from that website and put it together with data or a service from that website using little hooks that programmers know how to put things together with. This is called chicagocrime.org and it's done by a guy who now works for the Washington Post, uh, so give them credit for knowing who to hire. He took Google Maps, Chicago database of crime data, and put it together. And you can go in at many levels here. Journalists should be doing this routinely at big organizations with varying kinds of data and giving people a way to annotate their own. I have lots of ideas on what they should be doing. Mashups, though, are mixing media in many ways and... Uh, Again, there's this generation that's very fluent with video that is doing things like this. This is political commentary of high order, if I can get it to play.
that's commentary of tomorrow. Uh, we'll, we can get at the copyright question later. New models, business models. Uh, well, Oh My News has a nation of freelancers. They're the other very important experiment, I think, in the world today. And they've convinced more than 40,000 people in Korea to be part of this. It, it's extraordinary. And Gadget and Gizmodo and other gadget sites, the uh, business model for this is, of course, he sold the company to AOL for 20, well, 15 million minimum is what I get, what I heard, and maybe 25. That's not a bad business. Newspapers are starting to respond, and, and TV and radio. Um, the News and Record in Greensboro, uh, North Carolina, has decided it needs to be a town square for its community. And I'm uh, watching this with huge interest because I think they may set a, a path for the rest of the newspaper industry. They're doing blogs, and uh, they're quite good. It's, it's a wonderful thing they're trying and other media are starting to get hyper-local. This is in Bakersfield, California. They've picked out a quadrant of the city and done a website just for that and asked people to help out who are living in the area. It's uh, profitable. But if they don't, others will. Uh, I. Brattleboro in Vermont is one of the best of the, the new sites, at least from what I can see. And I'm trying to watch them all. But the thing we have to remember is that the the journalistic threat to established media, I think, is not the interesting question. It's really not the real threat. It, it's The threat is this, the world's largest classified advertising operation. It's called eBay. They call it an auction site, but it's classified ads. Craigslist, classified ads eating at the margins, not the margins, taking away the business that makes newspapers run at any rate. Uh, it, certainly this is mostly true for newspapers, but it's becoming something more broad in the media. And it's important because the folks who are going after this are the folks who don't, they're, they're, it's the money that they're chasing in some level. They're doing, they're doing better classifieds than the, the newspapers can. But these are companies that are, are well-funded, they're nimble, they're, uh, uh, they're hungry for what they do. And the important thing is that doing journalism for Craigslist and for eBay, doing journalism would be a ridiculous distraction from the business that they're in. That's not true of journalism organizations. And I don't know how to fix that. I'm not nearly smart enough to tell you how to fix that broken business model for the news industry. I think going very, very local will help. We need to make sense of all this stuff coming at us or f flying by us anyway. Uh, things that are various kinds of sites like these uh, that are starting to organize it. This is one of the more recent ones called Dig that uh, has a voting model uh, that I'm intrigued by. Things I assume to be the case for the future is that this will all get faster, cheaper, and more powerful. That seems to be something we can count on. We need better conversation tools, ways of understanding reputation, uh, 
and and gauging what's good, what's not good, what's reliable, what's trustworthy. We need better tools for doing all of this, whether it's as an audience or as a contributor. Uh, it's 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 pretty good, but it's not good enough. And data that about metadata is data about data. We need much more of it so we can track conversations and issues better. Something that uh, I'll talk about more in upcoming talks this spring. Uh, I really believe that the more engaged one becomes with the news, with current events the more likely it is one will become more active in a citizenship kind of way. Uh, it's a theory, anyway. And I think the media can help and should help. This is a site at the BBC called uh, Action Network, where they're uh, helping, they're putting up tools so that people can create campaigns for change, or maybe for more of the same if they want a campaign for that. And the, the idea is they put up the tools, they help people find each other in their local areas, and then they watch people do the campaigns, and then they'll cover what people do. Not that they're telling them what to be doing, but they want to know what people care about and to help them do it and then uh, cover it. it. It's an experiment that has not done that well yet, partly because there's no one at BBC who... No program really owns this. It's kind of free-floating and no one, it needs owners. But what I love about it is that they're doing, I think, a thing that journalists should be thinking about doing, which is helping people be more active as citizens. And that that can only be good for us in every way. One of the first things that people did when they put this site up, uh, which I thought was kind of proof of concept, was there was a campaign to uh, take away public funding from the BBC. And they watched that and said, wow, I, I guess it works. It, uh, of course, they didn't lose their funding. My one political part of this, and that is a reminder that this is a read and write medium, uh, but that Hollywood and increasingly I'm starting to think the book publishers and pretty soon everyone who does what we call content will have joined the idea that what, but Hollywood's leading the charge, and that this is how they see the internet. Um, you know, they have the button for volume and channel. They've added a button for interactivity uh, that's called buy stuff. That's not my idea of interactivity, and it shouldn't be yours. We need to talk with each other. This is conversation. It's not, uh, it's, it's not a, just a marketplace. And the reason we should worry is that this could, this could damage innovation and it could damage where we're going. Uh, there are many things to worry about, but this is one of the ones. My shameless self-promotion slide uh, for my book, which I will point out uh, is available for download for no charge if you uh, go to the web. And it was published under a Creative Commons license, which instead of uh, all rights reserved, means some rights reserved. And in this case, the, the rights we reserved were uh, that if you download it and give it away, that's fine, but just don't sell it. Uh, the principle is that if anyone's going to make money, we'd kind of prefer it was us. And that's how you reach me. And that's the 
talk part, and now for the listen part, uh, I'm going to bring up David and Alex. So I'm, I'm not going to disagree with anything you said. Okay. You, think, you can go. Um, I, I've been a, a journalist since 1991 covering the technology business. And, so, and I've been a student of the journalism industry ever since becoming a journalist. And I've been watching from a much more pragmatic point of view than the one that you that you just heard more of like I think a, a very cultural um, explanation of what's going on, but I'd like to like talk a little bit about what goes on inside a publishing company as we go through these uh, these these periods of transition and, and and how a publishing company responds and and why that needs to change. Um, you should know that over the years I've been in various roles for the companies I work for, executive editor, editor-in-chief, uh, general manager, have varying degrees of responsibility for the company's success, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, responsibility for budget, things of that nature. Um, when I was first at Ziff Davis covering technology, there was an online service, Dan mentions it in his book, called CompuServe, and, and that was... Um, one of the first times that anybody put content online, any news organization or anything like that. And we were active in CompuServe, uh, as if Davis was. I was working at the time for a publication called PC Week. And, and, and one of the things I want to just talk about here is this is, as we go through this list of things that I'm just going to talk about very, very briefly, um, uh, as we go down, the, there's three things that change or three axes, axes that, that kind of with this change that affected the publishing companies in a, in a, in a major way. One of them is the, uh, the barrier uh, to reaching mass numbers of people. So as we're going to go down this list, the barrier to reach a mass number of people got lower and lower and lower and lower. And the other one was the, the tools to aggregate information got better and better and better and better. And then... The third thing was is the number of people who started publishing content got greater and greater and greater and greater. And, and most publishing companies failed to kind of look at this from a very pragmatic point of view and how it affects their business. So CompuServe is one of these things that was this very geeky and it was only a few people who had access to it. And um, There wasn't a big barrier to entry, but you had to have a computer. Not many people had one. You had to get an ID and log in. It was, it was rather technical, and so not a lot of people were publishing stuff on CompuServe, and therefore not a lot of people were reading it. We were publishing on CompuServe. How many people have ever seen the news groups, NNTP, Usenet news groups? Well, I'll tell you, that wasn't sort of like a precursor to mass distribution of content, and by the way, free. I don't know what was. It. Um, almost no publishing company that I ever... I don't think I know of one company that actually embraced Usenet. There was the Well, which was a really cool source of information, but, I mean, 
if publishing companies really wanted to be on the leading edge, maybe that was an opportunity. But it was largely confined to uh, geeks um, and pornographers. Um, Sometimes the same people. Yeah, that's right. The, the web came along, and as Dan mentioned, um, the barrier to entry fell uh, substantially, but it was still, still required quite a bit of technical expertise. Um, that, that didn't change the fact that uh, because the barrier to reach millions of people, you didn't need a printing press. I just to give you an idea, PC Week, we were so deadline-driven that if you, we used the same printer that like Time and Newsweek and People used. There was only like one or two of these printers in the country that, that did this sort of thing, generated a weekly newspaper and in all these colors and everything. And uh, if we missed our deadline to get in our time slot at the printer, you moved to the back of the list. Uh, uh, the back of the line. And if you moved to the back of the line, it affected your postage. Um, you, had to, you had to pay more to make sure that the publication showed up on time on Monday morning on the desks of all these IT managers. So there was this whole infrastructure that was really expensive to, and, and, and put a lot of stress in the whole organization. And suddenly this thing comes along where there's no deadlines. And there's no, there's no print. There's no barrier to entry. And suddenly we had thousands of competitors that were not only publishing content that was similar to ours, but we're actually engaging this this uh, art of narrow casting. You know, we were PC Week. We covered technologies all across the gamut of 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 IT, networking, you know, uh, email, PCs, mainframes. Some guy launches a website that just focuses strictly on digital cameras, and the next thing you know, he owns the whole market because he is spending all of his time going very deep on that subject, much much deeper than we could ever go on any topic we were covering. This is a very this was very dangerous to us. Email combined with a web. So, okay, so now we've got a website, and uh, if you have email addresses, then you can alert people to the fact that you have new content on your website. And, and the barrier to, to using email and distributing emails to thousands of people was, was significantly lowered, much to the chagrin of many people today because of what spam is all about. The mobile web came along, but that was really kind of a failure and still is. And then Slashdot showed up, which I think is sort of like the first blogging operation. I mean, really, it's not the first one, but it was the first one that really hit the big time. There was a couple guys who kind of filtered what got on, but at the end of the day, it was all about people contributing content and other people coming and reading it. And uh, it gained really, the popularity of it was, was unbelievable. And uh, most media companies failed to recognize the, the power of Slashdot and in fact, many of them discounted it. It was like, ah, I'll never go anywhere. Well, and blogging, photo sharing, podcasting, video casting, all these uh, sort of social-oriented um, uh, publishing mechanisms that even lower the barrier to publishing even further. Um, blogging in particular because you didn't have to be, you didn't have to know HTML. I mean, what, what is blogging? It's really just just uh, HTML authoring tool that has all of the, accoutrement, you know, built in, the navigation of, you know, the month, how to get to March of 2005 and find whatever that person wrote back then. All that's all taken care of for you. You don't have to worry about that. All you have to do is write. Um, so the barrier gets lower, and every time the barrier gets lower, 
um, more people come in and start providing content, which to a publishing company means you have more competitors. Um, and the tools to aggregate that content get better. Uh, and what I mean by tools to aggregate, remember back in the old days, there were things like BackWeb and Marimba, and everybody said, oh, this is going to be the way everybody gets their content. It's going to be pushed out to you. Well, um, you know, now you have this RSS thing, and and allows people to basically build their own newspapers. So I'll pick a little bit from here, a little bit from here, a little bit from here. I will pour it into this one little funnel, and it'll come out in my interface. And guess what? I've got my own newspaper. Um, so the publishing companies no longer controlled the frame like we used to. And this is a big threat. And so um, you know, Dan mentioned he doesn't have an answer to how newspapers survive in this. But I would say that you know, we, we keep repeating the same mistakes uh, or the, the established media versus, I would say, the unestablished media keeps repeating the same mistakes. One of the problems is the established media has this thing it has to protect. It's got people working for it. It's got infrastructure. It's got all these things that it can't let go away so easily. And so how do you keep that business model going? How do you keep your journalists employed? All of that. So the first thing you do is you go into denial like you do with Slashlight. Oh, forget it. You know, sooner or later. Somebody will discredit that. The information on there will be proven to be unreliable and it'll go away. Well, it never did. Um, and then you start discrediting it. I think we saw at the last time uh, the, the uh, blogging journalism and credibility uh, conference that, that you guys had here uh, at the beginning of 2005, was it? 2005? Last year. There was a little bit of denial or discrediting going on in the room uh, between the established media and the what I would call the unestablished media, and it was fun to watch. Um, then the next thing you do is say, okay, well, if you can't beat them, we better join them. And you start to embrace the new medium in ways that are basically just repetitions of the old business model. I mean, throughout all these changes... We never really changed their business model that much. We said, well, how can we just do the same, do, you know, take what we have now, which is like content and advertising and, and audience and, and strap it all together and just, you know, in the same context as we've always done, but just embrace this new medium. So let's, let's, let's turn all our news people into bloggers. Okay, that's a really useful thing. You can I can imagine what's going on right now at my the sister organization um, of uh, of my comp, my outfit. I work for ZDNet, but our sister organization is News.com. We all are part of CNET, and all of the news reporters are now blogging. Well, they're blogging, they're writing news stories, and you can imagine the stress this puts on on the journalists. I mean, they're they're creating more content than they've ever created before. Some people say blogging is going to be the death of journalism. I say, no, it's going to be the death of journalists because they're all going to have heart attacks. It's like jumping into Niagara Falls. Um, this, to me, is not an innovative way to embrace these new things in order to deal with the threat. And again, let's be real clear about what the threat is or, or let's make sure we frame it properly. Time is a zero-sum game. It's something that most people don't ever stop to think about. But... Everybody in this room will only spend a certain amount of time every day consuming content, and it's just a question of who takes that time up. And if there are many more choices to fill that time with, then that's a threat to the organizations who used to be able to control that time. And the established media used to be able to control that time. Now they can't. So I have hypothesized that it's up to media organizations to innovate. They don't know how to do that. You know, instead of discrediting bloggers for being 
you know, discrediting their credibility, why not assert your own? Whatever happened to that? Why not prove the value of your content, for example, by being more transparent about how you arrived at your final product? produce pieces. I've talked about media transparency, but so far, I don't know of one media organization out there that practices media transparency. And what I mean by that is, is we already have a way of, of delivering to people, for example, through RSS, letting them subscribe to our polished, finished product. Why not let them subscribe to the unfinished product so that they can make a judgment for themselves whether or not the, the way we presented it, the way we edited it, was truly a credible job. So, and I think technology can be a big can can be of a lot a lot of a, can be helpful in um, in in managing uh, transparency. Today, it's impossible to be transparent if you're a journalist. It's, it's too much load. I've tried it for a long time, and it's just too difficult. You know, to take, for example, all your written notes and get scan them and put them up where everybody can see them, and and take all your emails and shove them through into some other channel where everybody can see them, and take your video and take your audio. That's a lot of work, but all the technology is there. It just takes somebody who's really smart to glue it together in a way that makes it a lot easier to build transparency systems that not only can be used by media organizations to prove that they're credible, and bloggers and any journalist for that matter, but also for media organizations to keep an eye on what's going on inside their organization. Maybe, for example, the Jason Blair affair at the New York Times would have never happened if there was a transparency system in place at the New York Times that the managers who are now out of work because of that could have been keeping a watchful eye on to protect their own careers. Transparency is almost as much about asserting your credibility as it is about protecting your career or about building your career. If you're a journalist, I would argue that you want to practice transparency just to build your career. So I look at um, the new media, the citizen media, and I say um, it's absolutely incredibly credible, and, uh, and because there's so much of it, and we can pick it, and we can aggregate it with the new tools, it's an incredible threat um, to the existing or established media that thought they were, lived in a protected world. They don't. We don't. And um, I do think there are some answers um, to, to newspapers uh, surviving this, and it has to do with, A, understanding that time is a zero-sum game, and, B, how to assert or how to claim the, the most amount of time that you can claim in terms of the, the, the people and how much time they're allocating or your audience and how much time they're allocating to consuming content. So I look at it from this much more pragmatic point of view. You know, it's, it's uh, citizen media has devas- is devastating. And I, I think most people would say you're, you're overblowing it, but I'm not. I mean, trade publications are the first ones Smaller publishing outfits are the first ones to feel the effects of any transition. And I can, I can take you into the tech media and show you how the tech media is struggling to survive right now. Take some of the most respected publications out there and they, that used to be this thick, and now they're pamphlets. And they're about to take the next step, which is to fall off the cliff into oblivion. And so... Um, 
my, I don't disagree with anything that Dan has said. Everything that Dan has said is, is basically uh, a list of the facts and the reasons why citizen media is going to be very successful and why companies like the one I work for, if they don't embrace it, if they don't learn how to innovate and embrace it in, in ways that are not trying to extend the old business model, will ultimately fail. At least I think so. And I think we're doing a pretty good job at CNET of embracing these, these, these technologies and, and trying out new things. Um, you know, and, and I'm part of that charge at, at CNET. I'm, I'm trying to lead that revolution in some ways. I was the first one who did podcasting at CNET, and we've had some success there. Um, and I just want to say that one other thing is that over time, the media has become way more disconnected from its audience in terms of what it's providing. This is another key to survival. You know, you could thank, for example, Fox News for that, right? I mean, Fox News really kind of dumbed down what it meant to be a news broadcast. And it was really just, it was horrible for me as a student of journalism to watch all of the other media outlets go down the same toilet that Fox News went, you know, with the real dramatization and sensationalization and the music and the... I mean, it was just way over the top, but because all the readers and all the audience members were coming to them, the only response that the other news organizations had was to, to join that movement rather than figure out how to be themselves and beat it. And, uh, and once you become disconnected from your audience, <laughs> it's even more compelling reason for you to turn to other sources, for example, the raw voices of the citizen media. And, and that's why I turned to it because I'm increasingly disenchanted with what I'm getting in the real media. Um, uh, and, and the biggest example I can point out is just this rec- over this, these last week was, um, I thought it was really ironic how with the Valerie Plame situation, uh, the, the Bush administration, you know, reacted very almost ex- Exactly the opposite to the value plane, plane situation, right, as it has to the NSA situation with the, uh, with the wiretapping. So in other words, now everybody's trying to get to the bottom of who leaked the news to the media, right? This is horrendous that, that, that the news was leaked to the media. Meanwhile, over here, there was a deliberate leak to the media, and there it's okay. It's like a total hypocrisy. But where is the media covering this hypocrisy? What are they afraid of? Why is nobody looking at these two situations and saying, wait a minute, what's going on here? Over here it's okay, but over here it's not. You know, And that's why, again, I turned to the citizen media where I first sort of discovered this hypocrisy. Other people are not afraid to write about this the way the existing media are afraid to write about it. And so... I'm not saying covering the story. I'm saying pointing out the fact that I think it's a real interesting situation that um, suddenly the, the Bush, you know, I would say that the Bush administration, based on the fact that you can trace this, uh, the leak of the, of, uh, um, the Valerie Plame information to Dick Cheney's desk, right? I think that, that points out, uh, to me, a, a, at least 
raises some questions about corruption in the Bush administration. Okay? And, yeah, yeah. And um, let me answer the question and I'm done. But I, I also think that the, um, the fact that now suddenly this story was broken and the press has coverage of what happened with NSA and wiretapping and that suddenly the Bush administration feels like it needs to clamp down on that. Does, is, does, that, does that not seem hypocritical? Yeah. But where's, where's the criticism of all that, the larger thing of two completely different approaches to the same problem? Um, I'll, I'll I, what, wrap up. How much time do we have? Whatever you need. No, what I mean is to, to wrap this up. It's now, what, 820. What do you, what's the... How long do we want to go? Okay. I, I think I'm going to pass, and, and so we can have a conversation. I would only say that I totally disagree with just about everything that's been said by this gentleman. And I feel like I totally agree in many ways with what Dan has said. But the fact that I would disagree with, with you in many respects and agree with you, I think, has a lot to do with the way I look at this, which is much more of a journalistic concern rather than a business concern. I think that the models are, you know, complicated. They're terrible challenges for, for the businesses and so forth. But let's get to your questions. Well, we can't uh, we can't do much about the the atomizing of uh, the media in, into many many different channels. Uh, but your your question is about the echo chamber, really, the idea that we'll only go that we'll go to the things that where where we expect to agree with what we see, so we'll feel better. Um, I, I have some worries about that, but I, there was a study after the 2004 election that told me that maybe this was not going to be as big a problem as people had said. And the study indicated that folks who went to the web for uh, the bulk of the political information they were getting during the campaign were better informed about what the side opposing what they believed was proposing than people who did not go to the web for the bulk of their political information. Now, what I'm unclear on in that study was whether those were simply the motivated political junkies who would, are, who would have known anyway. But I'm not, I, I think they, they accounted and factored for that to some degree. So the, at least there's indications that the good statistical indications that, that this is not going to be as big a problem. The second thing is that the 
even in the most uh, vehement of these uh, political sites, they do tend to point to the people they think are wrong. Uh, so that you still are basically a click away. I mean, even if the pointer is, these guys are complete and unalterable idiots. There's a link to the idiocy. So if you if you want to take a look at what they're ranting about, you can see it, and people do. Dan, is there a segmentation in citizen journalism that you see that's going to have different kinds of journalism, just like there are different kinds of journalism in the marketplace otherwise? Different kinds in, in there'll be agenda journalism, partisan journalism, objective yeah. journalism. There'll be, I mean, is objective journalism something that does of any interest to citizen journalists? Uh, well, you, you can get me off on a on, on my own. I, I, I'm sort of I, I've lost the uh, belief in the word objectivity. I think we replace it with a few other things like what, what's your like, word. I don't have one. It's I have four or four or five that I that I think come to the same come closer to it than than I would use the than I would with that word. And they are thoroughness, accuracy, fairness, transparency, which would cover mm-hmm. the the advocate, and and independence. And the independence I'm thinking of is independent of uh, of of interests that that are going to decide what you write, and if you're not, then be transparent. Uh, I, I, if I get all of that, I feel like we have a decent chance at sorting it out. And what is there in the word objectivity that would not conform to those things? It's, it's an ideal that I think is worth striving for, but impossible to attain. Aren't those things ideal that you, that you described, those words you used? Um, Thoroughness, accuracy... I mean, the fuzziest of the bunch is fairness, and I think you can. I think we can pin down what thoroughness is. I think we can pin down what accuracy is. Uh, fairness is a little tougher, and transparency. I think we can generally agree on. Uh, I guess I'm maybe I'm replacing one fuzzy concept with a bunch. Well, of I guess what I'm what I'm getting at is that the. The, the sort of the standard of traditional journalism is to aspire, whether you call it objectivity or those things that you're describing, at least that's more or less the way I would look at it. I think the transparency is new, but I, I disagree with David. I think, it's, I think there's increasing transparency, and I think it's been on display. For instance, the Kurt Eichenwald story in the New York Times about, uh, about um, you know, child um, pornography. I thought that was an incredible example of of transparent explanation of why he did what he did, how he got involved in this kid's life, how he dealt with the police. And it was not just in the story. It was then expanded upon, and he was available on the web. And that was at the New York Times. That's, I mean, I think now there is an expectation of, of transparency in a way. I, I just, I would just say that I think, I'm not going to argue with that point. The point my, my point is it's not institutionalized to the point that it should be. And that it could be. Well, but I mean, do you really think that reporters would be responsible to take raw notes and things that people said to them, whether they know they're true or not, and just put them on the web? No, I think uh, that's a great point. I think there's um, somewhere in somewhere between zero and 100% transparency is something that's better than zero. And I don't disagree with that. And, so, and, so, and so today we're just, you know, where we see sp- occasional... 
uh, bouts of transparency that's good, but that's still not far enough away from zero. And I think that we could be a lot further along if we wanted to be, but we're not. Some fairly practical reasons why we won't put up notes on the web. They're called lawyers. Uh, yeah, let's, uh, in the back. I was writing the epitaph of the, of the mainstream media a little early here. Maybe the Jason Blair experience and the Mike Barnico experience and the other uh, black guys in the media have suffered is simply are, are part of a cleansing process and a reinvention process that is going to be necessary to achieve transparency. I, I see that uh, a lot of community journalism, much as I'm an advocate of community journalism, the problem of mainstream media does serve a function, which is providing a, a professional level of impartiality and fact-checking and, and accuracy verification and things you don't get routinely in a grassroots news organization. And I, it could be that the mainstream media needs to reinvent itself as, a, as an aggregation uh, medium and as a, uh, a, a fact-checking, a, a source of, of credible information, and that this is simply a part of the transparency uh, will come as a matter of going through some of this, this cleansing of these crises it's it's my I, I want to be really clear it's my absolute hope that we do not lose big media or traditional media as they exist in in key ways the top one being the ability to be the watchdog to do the watchdog function that takes deep pockets and real resolute Folks, the San Jose Mercury, where I worked for 10 years, just did a series uh, that went that looked deeply into the criminal justice system in Santa Clara County, California, where uh, Rick Tulsky, one of the great reporters I've ever met, spent three years on that project. Uh, if we don't preserve that, we're in trouble. And... I want to preserve what's best about big media, and I don't want to see it go away. I want to see just a, a more diverse ecosystem in the process. And I agree that the the more we get, the, I think media do a pretty bad job of covering each other, and ought to do be 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 aggressive more so than they have been, and that that will help cleanse out some of the uh, the problems that we've seen. But and, I don't want them to go away. And I wasn't writing the epitaph of of big media or established media, whatever you want to call it. I think the, I think we can write the epitaph for certain media outfits that are going down a certain path and not really kind of realizing what they can do to, to go down a better path. I'd like to point out again, going back to sort of more practical matters, when um, a site like Think Secret breaks some big story on the web about one of Apple's new products, that sort of, Knowing that that's going on out in the blogosphere puts an enormous amount of pressure on the rest of the established media to break that story sooner than the blogosphere will break it. And I can't see how you can, uh, you know, the, the scoop is the mighty revered scoop in in, in news organizations is is uh, is what all news or, news organizations go after and. So what happens when you start getting beat by these individuals in the blogosphere? Well, you, you have to take shortcuts. And you don't want to take shortcuts, but I think we're seeing some shortcuts get taken. And just to kind of 
going back to how the media reinvents itself, the point you made, I think there's, you mentioned the conversation, Dan. And part of the way the blogosphere arrives at the, arrives at the truth is not through the initial post being thorough or accurate or fairness or fair sometimes. Sometimes the way, and this is, I had to learn this the hard way, sometimes the blogosphere actually reaches the truth before the established media does through a conversation where somebody posts something and then somebody else says, that's an outright lie, that's false, and suddenly like four or five posts later involving five more people, you have the truth. That's, of course, in a world with con- where the constraint, as you point out, is time, if you only had time to see the first posting, uh, how do you catch up? And, 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 and I'm not disagreeing with the, with the downside or the negative impact of, of that methodology, but that is indeed sort of the methodology that is being taken, right? Question here. Do you vet any of the things that go on your site? Well, I think... Well, there's no question that if newspapers don't figure out how to do what you do, then they're... Because, as I think, as I think that Dan has said, and as I think that David has said, they've had it, you know, they've had it nice and fat for a long time. But they've been around a long time, and I don't think it would be wise to underestimate them. They're figuring it, they're figuring it out now. And the thing that really, in my opinion, is really in jeopardy is what's been alluded to by this gentleman back here. It's reporting, because reporting takes money. The, mo- the thing that's going away is the economic model that has supported traditional mainstream American journalism in newspapers, big newspapers, small newspapers, and so forth. That's now being, you know, destroyed in many respects by this new technology because of, you know, you know Craigslist and things like that. I mean, all of these things are, are quite true. But the thing that news organizations that are established have is still, maybe not for long, but they still have that brand identity and that sort of element of, of familiarity and trust that if they are smart, they will parlay in a new technological environment into a different kind of product. But if they give up doing serious news by professionals on serious subjects 
just to stay in business, then there's no real reason for them to stay in business at all, as far as I'm concerned. I don't care about that. What I care about is preserving genuine professional journalistic reporting on subjects that are really important. And I think that the blogosphere and the whole world of conversation, which is absolutely essential to our democracy, is all happening around a core of reported news. And that core, believe me, in these economic situations we're in now, is being eroded and rusting from the inside. And it's collapsing. And they're they're headed for they're headed for the wall. So, so we're in agreement. <laughs> no, we're we're agreement if they don't change. I just think that they are changing in ways that I think. I mean, I don't know about your situation. All I know is that the obsession of the newspaper industry now is to find these these solutions. And I think that that Greensboro model, for instance, that you had up. That's a, have you looked at that, David? I mean, it really is quite a. You know, they they are now in spots around the country, figuring out how to be a very, it's ironic, they're going back to a model that, uh, that is a wonderful model. It's a model of human beings with voices, and those are wonderful things. And that's 85%. But if you don't have that 15% of real reporting, then what you've got is a nice community thing, but you don't have anybody doing the hard stories and the real inquiry. And the, and the serious reporting that's vetted, that's the thing that is, that's the reason I asked Dan about the standard. I mean, I used to cover, you know, school boards and county commissions and things like that. And there were always people there who were very interested. But if you trusted them to tell you what was going on, in my opinion, you were making a mistake. And the people who have a passion for this have a genuine passion. I don't deny that. And I think that's lovely. And I think it's wonderful to have all these voices. I just don't think you necessarily are going to want that person to tell you what's going on in the school system or the county commission or whatever. Well, let's... Well, then I think that the newspaper that you're in is being milked and is headed for, you know, it's, 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 in, it's inviting somebody to take it away from them. I and it's happened before. I mean, the newspaper business is filled with stories of newspapers that got so focused on making money that they lost their audience and somebody came in and took it away from them. And that's certainly possible. They want to, well... I they will. Hope you will. <laughs> Question. Okay. I wonder to what extent is the problem not the news 
that was used at one point to take away the orders from the classified department, that was used to take the orders from the car dealerships. It got used to all of that sort of just rolling in the door. And to what extent is this problem not because the newsroom is somehow morally bereft, but instead because, to use an analogy, the business side of Well, I think we just heard from her uh, what happens when, when, when a community is that way. I, I mean, it's... The I think what's probably going to... See, the thing is, most of these newspapers, even the weeklies now, are owned in chains that are either publicly owned, publicly traded, or they are owned by people who treat them as though they are, which means that they have an enormous pressure to preserve their profits, and they're trying to, frantically to figure out how to do that. And the way they're doing that... Now that they've got all of the productivity things they can get from technology is that they're cutting their reporting staff. Well, those profits are going to go down because they're going to lose audience. And ironically, when that happens, what probably I think you're going to see, and this may happen in the Knight Ritter case, huge newspaper chain for the first time in the 20th, since the dawn of the 20th century, Instead of newspapers being sold to chains, they may well start being sold back to individuals and families and groups of people in local towns who want to have their newspaper again. And they won't be as profitable as they have been, but they'll be plenty profitable, and they'll be very different creatures, and the expectations will be different. And it's going to be painful for the owners, but I think that, uh, you know, this is something that I think is a, is a real possibility. And... And that is not necessarily at all a bad thing. You can put out a hell of a good newspaper on 10%. One, take these last two here. I have a question about whether the metrics of citizen journalism are not about journalism and about being a citizen political action. And we are seeing an evolution towards you're comparing newspapers with citizen journalism, and maybe there's no point. And in fact, the business model is eroding to the extent that we want the success of citizen journalism reflect political action, not clicks, not ad dollars, not whatever. So I, I wonder if well, what, even comparing the right thing. I think that what you're going to see, my fear is that citizen journalism will basically become the model, and it'll be a cheap model because citizen journalists work for nothing, essentially. And instead of having reported news, you'll have a profitable news operation that will be done by people who don't get paid. And if you don't pay people, you can't control them. I would just say you can compare because ultimately the axis along which you're comparing is time. And I'll just come back to this again is, is that we think about everybody in this room, think about how much time you spend doing these different things with your day. You spend probably a repetitive fixed amount of time each day consuming content. Maybe you spend extra time with a Sunday paper. And so if those political activists that are providing that content are providing it to you for free and you're spending the, t the content absorption time that you normally spend absorbing that content, then you're spending less time absorbing other content by, that's provided to you by your local newspaper. That ultimately digs in to the profitability of a newspaper and then the dour and spiral begins. I, 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 I got to say, go back to the publications that I've worked for. They start by cutting off cutting people on the copy desk. Then uh, they start cutting other non-essential non staff, the switchboard, the, the human resources people, but eventually they start cutting into bone. And then once that happens, it's, it's a hard crawl back. We're about to find out in the next 
few years whether people want to have professional journalism or not and whether they're willing to pay for it directly or not because the disaggregation, the disintermediation is occurring and we're going to, uh, uh, as a wise editor told me when online first started, we're about to find out what people actually want to read. And that should scare the hell out of every journalist who's, who's a professional today. One last question here. Colin is waving us off here. Go ahead. You anticipated part of it. My question really, first statement of if we as users or people are really at the center of our media, we're now selecting stories that matter to us. We're selecting more than ever what we want to know about. The question is, part of back philosophically between the familiar and the good. We have the things that are familiar to us, that are voted on by gigs, that are voted on by slash dots, that are, that are sentimentalized by Fox News, but get ratings and as a result have avatars supporting them. How do you then find either a business model or a justification to enable the quality reporting that should be done, that is a fourth check, that, that deserves to be done? How do you enable that to progress? There's still, it's not over. It's not over yet. And for one thing, it, as Alex pointed out, you can, you can put out a pretty damn good journalism product on a 10% margin. And that, I think, is going to, st we still can do that for a long time to come. But there are other models to support things. The, some of the best investigative reporting in the world today is being done by uh, the Center for Public Integrity, a nonprofit group that lives pretty much on foundation grants. And I think they could get other sources of income if they worked at it. There will be models, there have to be, or we're screwed. And, and I think people really do need to know things and want to have the, these kinds of things. Simultaneously, we're going to have better ways of surfacing or at least identifying things that we, uh, that we find trustworthy and that maybe our circle finds trustworthy. Um, it's going to be really messy in the meantime. Uh, and I, I just don't. I don't have an. I don't have a quick way from here to there. But I, I'm convinced we're going to get through it with something good. I just don't know what's uh, coming in the middle. I would agree with that. Uh, how many people know Robert Scoble? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Microsoft Blogger. So, so you know, there was sort of a seminal moment of an evolution of the blogosphere and and reporting when Robert Scoble wrote up this incredibly scathing review of Technorati but never called David Sifri, the CEO of Technorati, to ask him a couple questions or verify his findings. Now, I, you know, you may misunderstand my position here. I am one of those reporters that's sort of like a, you know, like a pit bull. I'll hang on till I get every last fact, and then I'll report it when I'm done. Um, but I'm also blogging. I'm, doing, I'm playing both roles. And when I saw him do that, knowing, uh, and I had spent a lot of time with David Sifri to understand how Technorati works, Right away, I recognized that what Robert Scoble had written about Technorati was, may have been true in Robert Scoble's mind, but was untrue because it was something, it was something that David Sifri never said Technorati delivered. You know, Robert Scoble declared Technorati sort of a failure because it wasn't doing X, but David Sifri never said, hey, we do X. So I wrote a note to uh, Robert, and I said, did you ever, did, did you ever call David? And I wrote it to David. I said, did Robert ever call you? And the answer was no. And so then I wrote a thing that said, that basically held 
Robert's feet to the fire over his reporting, right? And Robert first defended himself, and a couple other people joined in, and it was a very interesting conversation <laughs> that you know it, it evolved. But then something interesting happened. The Register, who anybody know the Register, uh, Andrew Orlowski, wrote something that he never ch- wrote something about Microsoft where he never did his fact checking. And you're, <laughs> Rebecca shocked. But but what it what happened was is is Robert Scoble Robert it caused Robert Scoble to rethink how he approaches what he writes. He suddenly realized that maybe he should be making it. First he was defending. He's saying, "Look, I don't have to make that phone call first because the conversation will get the truth out." But after Orlowski wrote something that was incorrect about Microsoft without doing any fact-checking, Scoble publicly wrote that he changed his mind and that he was going to make that phone call. And so I think we will arrive at, at, a, at, a, at some sort of place that everybody can live with. It's just a question of how and when. If, if I can use that uh, to just make a plug for the center that I'm doing now, the Center for Citizen Media, part of the mission is to help people understand what goes into doing journalism and to help them with tools, with training, with all sorts of things, folks who are not journalists to understand, A, how to be better media literate at what's out there, but also the ones who want to be part of this emerging conversation to do it in a what I believe is a more responsible way. And that that's uh, and anyone who wants to help. I'm... <laughs> I'll be grateful for anybody who's interested. Um, Colin, we... I mean, these are very, very interesting times, and I think that so much of this is so positive and so good. I mean, I I love the idea of all these voices. I think that, in a funny way, though, it reminds me of Athenian democracy versus a republic. And I think that Athenian democracy sounds great in theory. Athenian democracy is when everybody has a vote and the debate is between everybody. And a a republic is when those people essentially elect people to act for them. I think that for the most part, there's so much excitement about the ability to do so many things on the web that we need to sort of wait and see how it all is going to shake down. Because I just think that if everybody's out there broadcasting, nobody's going to be listening. And I don't know exactly how it's going to shake down, but I think that it is not going to be that everybody's talking and everybody's listening simultaneously. I think that it is going to sort itself into places like David was saying, because you don't have endless time, you're going to find places you you trust, individuals or, or sites or institutions. And uh, they're going to be there because you do trust them. And if they make a a model that can pay for itself, fine. And what I care about is that there would be that model accessible to a lot of people, uh, a mass audience for high-quality journalism. I think high-quality journalism is going to exist, but it's apt to be something that's very, very expensive. 